This is the Vanguard Podcast. I'm Gavin. And I'm Zach. And we've just been joined by Colin Bird, the mayor of Greenbelt, Maryland. Uh, mayor Bird is the youngest black mayor in the United States currently, and he has recently announced a primary challenge to Congressman Stinney Hoyer to represent Maryland's 5th Congressional District. Um, you've already been endorsed by Marion Williamson, uh, who we're a big fan of, past guests on this show, so thought that was super cool. And, and you've described yourself as the progressive alternative to the 81-year-old House Majority Leader who is currently serving his 20th term. Uh, so how's it going this evening, Mayor Bird? Uh, it's a beautiful day, as always, and thank you so much for having me on, uh, Mr. Gavin, Mr. Zach. It, it's a pleasure and an honor. Yeah, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure, and, and thanks so much for your time this evening. We really are looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I guess a good place to start off, for our audience at least, um, would be just the story of how you became uh, the mayor of Greenbelt. If you wouldn't mind recounting that story of how you uh, defeated the incumbent three-term mayor by just 95 votes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's hard to, it's hard to determine how the sausage is made in politics, um, you know, so I can't tell you everything that went into it. I don't know other than to say that I'm humbled and grateful to have the support of the people of Greenbelt. But I, I can tell you my story in terms of uh, politics. I can tell you that much. That's easier for me to explain. Um, you know, for me, uh, my whole uh, viewpoint on politics is at least partially influenced by my observations of the Obama presidency. That's not to say that I, you know, you know, fashion my politics after him, but it's to say that I became of voting age during the Obama presidency. And so it has, you know, that specific administration informed kind of some of the ways that I view politics and not only the triumphs of politics that are possible, the possibilities of politics, but also the challenges. So, um, you know, just to rewind, um, I actually turned uh, 16 uh, the day that Barack Obama was first elected president uh, in 2008, November 4th, 2008, that was my 16th uh, birthday. And I can tell you that, you know, that day, that night, um, America was overwhelmed with a sense that there was incredible racial progress, um, that um, possibilities in America were seemingly limitless. Um, but what I basically saw since Obama became president um, and even after he left president is that, you know, some of those, some of that hope, some of that optimism that he represented, he talked about the audacity of hope. Some of that was it was it was somewhat at odds with the facts of America, uh, and it was somewhat at odds with what I was seeing in America. Not only um, in my own community, but also you know at my university at the University of Maryland College Park, where I was a student during his presidency, um, and really all across America. You, you know, during his presidency, you had you know infamous, infamous incidents like, for example, the uh, killing of the Charleston uh, Nine at the I'm sorry, the Emanuel Nine in Charleston, South Carolina. You had Trayvon Martin, you had Michael Brown. Um, and so, you know, as a young African-American man, seeing these things and seeing that just incidents, but rather part of a, a much larger pattern that was somewhat untold in America prior to those incidents. Um, you know, I, I really made a commitment, um, you know, particularly as Black, uh, Black Lives Matter was being born, I made a commitment that I would really fight racism, combat racism for the rest of my life. I didn't know what all those forms would take. I mean, I was uh, a student activist at Maryland. I was in the 
Black Student Union, NAACP, that type of thing. Um, and, I, and I guess what got me into the political piece is that over time, you know, I've I realized that particularly once I became head of government relations for the NAACP at Maryland, I realized that over time we would be dealing with elected officials uh, with whom we would have to interact. And there were things that we were advocating for. I mean, I can go down the list, but what's more important is to let you know that I noticed that a lot of people just didn't care what we had to say as young people, as African-Americans. I mean, that was very frustrating to me, very frustrating to me, but more than just being frustrated, it really galvanized me into some form of action, additional action beyond what I was already engaged in. So um, I kind of went from being an activist to somebody to say, you know what, I need to get more involved in the electoral process, not as a candidate myself, but to try to support candidates that were more aligned with my values and to oppose those candidates that were not aligned with my values. But ultimately, you know, it brought me to where we are today in terms of me being from Greenbelt. Um, and as we were advocating on things, you know, in my city, um, you know, me and other organizers, you know, it became increasingly clear that the only way that some of the changes that I wanted to happen were going to happen was, was likely going to be with me actually taking a plunge into electoral politics. And so actually it wasn't so much my observation of that or my conclusion, you know, people in the community really encouraged me to run for office. So I ran for the city council. And then subsequently, again, similar story where I was somewhat, you know, dismayed by some of the things that I was seeing with the highest, you know, ranking elected official in my city at the time, the mayor. Um, you know, and, and so I, I, you know, decided that we needed to make that next, take that next step. So, you know, humble and grateful today to really you know, be able to serve as, as you said, the youngest black man in America. I wasn't thinking about that I was run as I was running, but since then I've learned that I'm that, so I'll, I'll take credit for it um, as long as it continues to be true. But, but that's what it was. I mean, I ran on a campaign. It wasn't so much about this one issue or that issue. It was about a, a, a form of governing that I think was missing and that I really longed for as a constituent. And I wanted to see people who served constituents actually use. So my, my campaign slogan actually has always been vote, bird, your voice will be heard. Vote, bird, your voice will be heard. And that is that is the ultimate democratic message, small d democratic message, which is the people's voices matter. Uh, and they should reflect, they should be reflecting what you do uh, as an elected official. That's what it was about. And that's why, for example, I'm running for Congress against any Hoy. It's actually, I had no intentions on doing this, but the reason I'm doing it it's because um, he doesn't listen to the people that I represent. He doesn't listen to me or the people that I represent by extension. That's why. And we can get into all the issues. Yeah, well, I definitely want to get into the issues. But first off, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your experience as mayor. You know, obviously, you're, you're, you're a young mayor. You know, you've, you've come into office with a lot of fresh ideas and, the, and, and also the, you know, will to act on, uh, act for the people, right? You know, uh, truly representing the constituents in your district. And I'm wondering, you know, uh, what kind of hurdles and, and, and blocks you faced during this particularly uh, difficult time of, of governance during COVID? You know, um, I'm wondering if you can give us some insight into how that's been acting your, impacting your community for one, and two, uh, you know, how you think that that'll continue to play into you, uh, your role in Congress should you get there? Absolutely. So, I guess that'll get to kind of why I'm running for Congress. So, you know, when I took office, I actually took I took office as mayor in, in November 2019. And we actually, I and really nobody else in the city or in America had any clue that 
within just a few short months, we'd be staring down the barrel of two of the biggest issues in American history, right? Um, you know, this global pandemic, but also unprecedented unrest around racial injustice. I want to be clear that racial injustice isn't new, but the unrest and sort of the awareness and the consciousness of white Americans, black Americans, people of all colors is, I think, very new. Um, and I could tell you that, you know, just, just to quickly speak on that, um, you know, having been my politics is essentially birthed out of Black Lives Matter. I told you about Trayvon Martin being part of the inspiration, Michael Brown, that type of thing when I was a student organizer. And, you know, over the years, I actually became really dismayed by the things that I would see because we would basically see uh, injustice, incident, injustice, uh, you know, outrage, you know, for a very temporary period of time, rinse, repeat. It, I mean, it was just this cycle of injustice and unaccountability for injustice, whether it was rogue civilians like George Zimmerman or rogue police officers like uh, Darren Wilson, um, you know, who killed Michael Brown. And so, yeah, I actually, I saw this over and over, even in my state, you know, Freddie Gray, that type of situation. And so honestly, when the, when the Floyd thing happened, I actually, actually was really, really extremely surprised that it seemed like for the first time in my life probably in American history, people were really taking this thing seriously. But just to come back to the pandemic, because that's actually why I'm, that's actually, you know, sort of the tip, that leads to the tipping point of why I'm running. You know, I, this has been a nightmare. This has been a nightmare, not so much for me personally. I'm doing okay. Um, I've never had COVID-19. I've never been evicted, none of that. Um, but there's so many people in, in my community, my neighbors, residents, constituents who have suffered tremendously from this. Uh, and the city has suffered. Our finances have suffered. Um, people are dying. Uh, people are being evicted. People are being foreclosed upon. And more than that, people are on the verge of all of the above, right? You know, people are one chance encounter away from getting COVID-19. And when you get COVID-19, you're one uh, pre-existing condition away from that being much worse than it would be if you didn't have a pre-existing condition. Uh, and being that, you know, I'm running in a district that includes Prince George's County, I, I would be remiss if I didn't note for you guys that COVID, I'm sorry, Prince George's County is the uh, diabetes capital of America. Uh, and so those pre-existing conditions are particularly well magnified in a county like this one, it's a majority black county, uh, but it's a county that has a lot of healthcare disparities in spite of it being, you know, considered one of the wealthier African-American counties in this country. So, you know, with the pandemic, um, we saw all of these issues. Um, and as you know, the CARES Act came out in last year, spring, summer of last year. And one of the things that was extremely concerning about the CARES Act is that it left out over 99.9% .9 of municipalities in America. This didn't get a lot of attention nationally. It didn't make the news. New York was good. San Francisco was good because the CARES Act did take care of municipalities with populations of 500,000 people or more. The fact that that happened uh, and that municipal, small and medium-sized municipalities like were left out of it was extremely concerning to me because at the same time that was happening, our city finances were being hampered, uh, were being hammered. Um, and even the second round of stimulus, we saw a lack of urgency on the part of members of Congress and both parties to address this issue of local government aid. Uh, at this, you know, at this particularly critical time. 
you know, at the same time with the issue of police brutality and criminal justice reform, one of the things that I reflected on was the fact that, um, you know, we have a district that is very diverse uh, and yet we really haven't seen a lot of that diversity reflected in the leadership of the district in the form of Steny Hoyer. Um, and, you know, he represented this county in, in a time when really people like me weren't even in this county. Uh, and so as these demographic changes have taken place, you know, I've noted that it's not just that we don't have a, a racial identity representative um, who's African-American or a person of color. It's that there have actually been, I think, some consequences to blind spots that he has in public policy or at least indifference that he has to public policy that I think impacts our communities particularly. I mean, he doesn't support Medicare for all, for example. That right there is really bad for a county like mine, which you know has the healthcare disparities that I talked about. You know, he doesn't support universal basic income. That is another thing that I think has uh, racially disparate negative impacts because, of course, poverty is concentrated in Black and Brown communities. Um, you know, beyond that, you know, he he has not co-sponsored a Sheila Jackson Lee's a reparations bill. Uh, and he actually promised a few years ago to bring that bill to a, to a vote on the floor. And yet that promise was not kept. That really is a district like this one. I think, you know, an African-American member of Congress, um, they might see it a little differently than I think Congressman Hoyer uh, sees it. But again, the reason that I'm running really has to do with the fact that we were left out. The city was left out of the CARES Act. And the only reason we ultimately did get some of that money was because our county actually took uh, an extraordinary, unprecedented and unparalleled step being the only county in the state of Maryland to actually extend some of that money to municipalities. So I know that's not the sexy issue that everybody's thinking about, but actually caring about my city was the basis for me saying that we had to get involved in this campaign. And so I'm already seeing that there's impacts in terms of the rhetoric that the congressman is employing around some of these issues. Well, it's interesting you bring up the CARES Act because, um, you know, when that happened, it was a little bit of a divisive issue. Obviously, a lot of Congress people, um, they took that vote because, you know, people, uh, the, the Democratic lawmakers and the Republican lawmakers were threatening to hold up that small dollar stimulus for people that really needed it. Uh, so a lot of politicians felt like they had to vote for it. Um, it. Had you been in Congress at the time, would you have voted yes on the CARES Act? Or um, if not, what would you have done to try to, you know, change the bill to, you know, more of something that would be of your liking or something that would help your community more? So I'll I tell you, so I've learned a lot about governing since I came in. You know, I'm a progressive. I was a Bernie delegate. Um, you know, I was at support of Bernie again in 2020. And so I definitely come from sort of a, a part of politics that is that some people might view as uncompromising. But I can tell you, since I became mayor and, and even beforehand as a city council member, I realized that you really do have to kind of work for consensus on things and you can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I'll be honest with you, I would have voted for the Act, but what's more important than whether I would have voted for the CARES Act is what would I have done to try to change it, as I think you were implying, you know, before we got to that point. You know, I think Congressman Hoyer often, he just kind of votes for whatever comes to him. He, he doesn't really seem to change the conversation um, on different things. And I've always been somebody that drives dialogue and direction that it needs to go. And so, for example, I would have definitely been on the House floor saying that we cannot cut out you know, uh, municipalities that are smaller than 500,000 people out of the CARES Act. I, I definitely would have tried to make the stimulus checks monthly 
um, and, and $2,000, you know, in the second stimulus uh, bill, they, you know, the, the, the House leadership, Democrats included, um, capitulated on $600 stimulus checks. I don't think they really fought on $2,000 until uh, the president, the, the, the former president, the office of the former president. Yeah, well, well let's talk about um, that, uh, Mr. Mayor. Uh, yeah, the Democrats kind of completely waffled recently on this this idea of $2,000 stimulus checks, right? I mean, we all know here that on January, what was it, 10th, four days before his $1.9 trillion package was released, Joe Biden was tweeting about $2,000 checks. He was saying it was a moral issue. $600 or $2,000 isn't a choice when you're trying to uh, decide between keeping the, a roof over your head and food on the table. These were words that somebody's, you know, his handler tweeted from his account, right? We were nominally supposed to believe that they were, you know, coming from Joe Biden. I'm wondering, how do you think this will impact both your race? And, and, you know, do you think that the voters in your district feel betrayed by this kind of, you know, bait and switch where they were promised $2,000 checks uh, and now they're not going to get them? You know, they, they kind of did everything that the Democrats asked for. They sent in, you know, money. They, you know, drove to Georgia and knocked on doors. People did a lot of effort to hand these Senate seats to the Democrats. And now they feel like they've been left out to drive. Just wondering if you had a response to that. You know, it's one thing to break a campaign promise. It's another thing to break the biggest campaign promise that you made. I mean, literally, their whole uh, Georgia race was based around the premise of. Warnock made posters with his name right. on, uh, with with his name and then the check. Right, right. And so, yeah, no, I definitely have concerns about it. I'm hopeful that they will revisit uh, increasing that number back up to 2,000. See, this is the other thing that I've, I've I'm, I'm also mindful is. You, you know, you, I don't believe in negotiating against yourself. So, you know, what a lot of Democrats are saying now, you know, is, well, you know, the Republic, we got to, you know, got to have a bipartisan bill. Well, you know, actually, Mitt Romney never proposed $1,400 stimulus checks. Mitch McConnell never proposed $1,400 stimulus checks, right? Joe Biden proposed $1,400 stimulus checks, right? And nobody asked him to do that. And so, you know, they want to play around with the math and say 1400 plus 600 is 2000. We know that. But y'all didn't say uh, I got you on $1,400 stimulus checks plus the 600 you already got. They they were point they were pushing $2,000 stimulus check. Now, I'll be honest with you. I think we need $2,000 stimulus checks. The real question, I believe, beyond how many. Right. Should it be a one time stimulus check payment of, of 2000 or should it be monthly and, and recurring and retroactive? I understand that these things have price tags associated with it, but the, the unfortunate reality is that, you know, we all we, we hear from people on both sides of the aisle always asking about the price tag, about funding when it comes to things like this to help, you know, the marginalized people who are hurting in a pandemic. But we don't hear as much of a, a vigorous uh, analysis. When the Fed puts of, a trillion dollars a day into fucking Wall Street. Yeah. Wall Street, the, you know, the Pentagon, that type of thing. So, you know, we, we, we're quick to fund wars. We're not quick to end wars and we're not quick to end poverty. And that's a problem. Uh, that makes zero sense. Um, and by the way, I would just note that uh, Congressman Hoyer supported the Iraq war, right? If we didn't have the Iraq war, the country would have a whole lot more money to cut not only $2,000 stimulus checks, but again, monthly stimulus checks. So all of these bad decisions we're making on foreign policy historically impact the moment that we're in right now. That's actually part of why we were in an economic crisis in 2008. It wasn't just the Wall Street issue. It was that the country was already behind the eight ball because of that disastrous Iraq war. Yeah, absolutely.
Um, well, Mayor Byrd, your candidacy for Congress draws immediate comparisons to that of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's, of course, become, you know, such a popular um, firebrand on the left. And um, she was also 28 at the time she took on and defeated powerful House Democrat Joe Crowley. Uh, she did so with the help of several progressive advocacy groups and PACs such as Justice Democrats. And I was just wondering um, if you intend to or earn the endorsements of such organizations to help carry you to victory. Um, what exactly is your strategy for you know, properly organizing this congressional run and, and getting out the you know, vote and getting out the word, especially in this unprecedented time as we face the pandemic? Um, I'm just wondering how you're planning on overcoming the you know, media bias against progressive Democrats and, and obviously the seniority bias against you because you're going up against such a powerful, um, you know, the House leader, minority leader. Uh, just wondering some of your thoughts on strategy. Well, let me try to take a couple of those. You, 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 you packed a lot in there. I'll say, look, you know, with respect to Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, I have a great deal of respect for her. Yeah. Um, but I do want to I do want to be clear that I'm Colenberg, right? I, I'm. I'm, I'm a fan of, of uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Jamal Bowman and Cori Bush and uh, you know, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and Ayanna Presley. I mean, Ayanna Presley in particular, because um, she actually is one of the people that I relate to as, as a former municipal official. She was a Boston City Council member. And so I really relate to her. And I also relate to her because, um, you know, in her campaign, she, you know, she unseated a, a a pretty, a relatively long time uh, white white member of Congress, in part on a campaign that was based on making sure that there was proper representation of of her community, not just from the standpoint of having an ally, but having a champion. And so that's something that I'm very mindful of in this campaign. That that the choice some of the voters in this district have, many of the voters in this district have, is you know, do we want somebody who's a never enough community politician? Or do we want a champion who's always been up by and for the people of this community, this county, um, and, and ultimately will be for this district? But, um, you know, as far as how we actually go about things, um, I definitely would love to have the support uh, of Justice Democrats. Um, you know, I believe that my platform is very much in, in synchrony with what, you know, they espouse. You know, Medicare for all, Green New Deal. Look, the irony of Green New Deal, for example, is that my city was literally created by the New Deal. Um, and it's literally got green in the name. Uh, and on top of that, we are the most sustainable city in all of Maryland. You can't make up all of these things. That's like crazy that we got all of those things. Um, and we're talking about a Green New Deal, right? Green Belt, Green New Deal. It just makes sense. We should be ground zero for that conversation. Um, you know, but even beyond that, canceling student loan debt. I'm very mindful of that, you know. Um, and, and, and free tuition public college. Look, I come out of the Bernie wing of the party. Like I said, I was a Bernie delegate. I'd probably be one of the first people. Uh, I, I would be, the, I think I would be the first member of Congress who prior to becoming a member of Congress was a Bernie delegate. Um, so I think that's something that hopefully would resonate with progressives nationally, that type of thing. Um, and I've also earned, um, you mentioned my endorsement from the endorsement that I received from Ms. Williamson, I've also earned the endorsement of the first national organization to endorse in this race, Roots Action. Um, and so I think, you know, by the same token, we will ultimately get those type of endorsements, brand new Congress. Look, I'm a brand new candidate, brand new Congress, those type of organizations. I, I, I definitely would be humbled and grateful to receive that report, support. I'll tell you this, though, you know, coming out of organizing, one of the things that I'm mindful of, and this is why I led with saying, look, I respect uh, Congressman Ocasio-Cortez, but what's going to be more important is that I, I give you my flavor. 
right? I think we got too many copycats out here that just want to say they, they hit copy and paste on Ocasio-Cortez's platform and then they try to repurpose it. You know, my campaign, while it has a lot of those elements in terms of minimum wage, 15 hours, all that type of thing, I'll be honest with you that I'm running this campaign for this district um, and I'm a very much a local guy. Um, yeah. You know, I didn't start with thinking that I should be in politics because I'm inspired by Congressman Ocasio-Cortez. Oh, yeah. I started with the people. Yeah, the only reason I always... Yeah, the only reason I brought it up was because the age similarity and going up against such a powerful House Democrat like you are. Mayor Byrd, I wanted to ask you, you know, you bring municipality uh, experience to Congress with you uh, should you be elected. And I think one of the things that people overlook on the left, and it's something that you've talked about at length in this interview, is, you know, obviously the, the there's a great demand from the people from of all walks of life, from every background in this country. Uh, we uh, joining together to demand racial justice in this country, right? Predicate uh, kind of taking their cues from the Black Lives Matter movement, which, as you mentioned, was kind of the catalyst for you getting involved in politics. A lot of people don't realize that the mayor actually and the local municipalities actually have a lot of oversight over the uh, the police and uh, to at least to a certain extent, depending on where you're from. I'm wondering what kind of experience you can take, you know, working with police departments, you know, kind of uh, reforming your own community. And how do we expand that to uh, tackle it at a more national level so that we can kind of, uh, I guess, uh, speed things up a bit, right? We don't, uh, you know. Sure. You know, I mean, the interesting thing about it is, so first of all, uh, let me let me just say a couple of things about this. Uh, the two biggest issues in policing, I believe, are transparency and accountability. Um, transparency and accountability. You know, a lot of people, if you look at the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which the Democrats came out with, it's fine. I support it. But, you know, I noticed that a lot of people think that the issue in policing is having the right use of force policy. So like banning chokeholds. I mean, I, I, that just became super duper popular, um, you know, following the Floyd incident. And, I, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be banned. Of course they should be banned. But banning chokeholds and having no transparency and accountability is a recipe for disaster. Um, and, and that is where I see most of the challenges. Um, it's, it's almost impossible to know who the quote unquote bad apples are, even if you subscribe to that ideology. I don't, I don't really subscribe to the bad apple thing, but if you subscribe, it's very difficult to know that. Um, it's all secret, especially in a state like Maryland. Um, you know, in, in Maryland, we actually have less transparency around that than they did in, in Minnesota. Um, you, you know, in Minnesota, you could actually see that guy's, uh, you know, some of his previous complaints and the fact that he was not new to that type of misconduct. Um, you couldn't see everything, but you could see something. In Maryland, you couldn't see anything on these guys um, if, if, if and when things happen, which they do. You know, the other thing I would note is that in our county, we actually had a settlement of $20 million go to the family of William Green following a police brutality a case. That's that's more than the Freddie Gray case and the Breonna Taylor settlement combined. So I say that to say, like, you know, Minneapolis got a lot of attention. Louisville and Breonna Taylor got a lot of attention. But we got some of the biggest issues in America right here in Prince George's County. Um, fortunately, we haven't had those type of, uh, you know, massive settlements in Greenbelt, but we've got issues as well. And, I, and people don't want to hear that. You know, it's very important to be honest. You know, in our whole conversation around police reform in Greenbelt, Steny Hoyer has been absent. You contrast that with Congressman Elijah Cummings, who when Freddie Gray and, and, and all of that situation was going on, just, 
you know, five or six years ago, he was actually in the heart of Baltimore with the people and trying to be part of that dialogue. That's a very big difference. Before we even get to policy, having a politician who's honest and present in the dialogue is extremely important. And I would be present even if it was a quote unquote local issue like policing, because guess what? That's a national issue as much as it's a local issue. But, you know, so I say that to say in, in, in Maryland, you know, we have some we have some policies on our books uh, in Greenbelt, but I got to tell you, we got to go a lot further. And there's some real roadblocks to the progress that I think we should and have to make um, in policing here in Greenbelt and around the state. And those are one, the uh, Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, which is a state law. Um, Maryland is actually the first state uh, in all of America to create a Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. And guess who was in the Maryland State Senate when that was created here in Maryland? Uh, none other than the Honorable Steny Hoyer. He supported the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights and in effect helped create the national model for police unaccountability, police unaccountability. And to this day, we're grappling with the effects of that. Uh, and so that is an extreme big problem. And it still is something that has not been repealed because police unions have been successful in thwarting past efforts to do that. I think this year, you know, there's as good a chance as any to get it done. But we got to, you know, keep our foot on the gas with that. You know, the second thing, um, you know, and this is more related to transparency, is the Public Information Act, which allows all of these police officers to, you know, have their misconduct, their bias, their discrimination complaints, um, you know, excessive use of force complaints shielded from the public. And so that creates an accountability issue as well, because nobody knows who's doing the dirty deeds until you become a victim of it. And even when you're a victim of it, you don't even get to know what happens when you file a complaint. And so I'm supportive, for example, of Anton's law, which is a state law, a proposed state legislation here in Maryland that would help to make it so that our Public Information Act actually works for the people and makes it so that we can actually see these complaints and have that accountability and transparency. But the last thing that I want to mention on this beyond use of force, beyond transparency and beyond accountability is we definitely have to have a conversation about the expenditure of taxpayer resources on policing. Um, now, I know th this is going to be somewhat unpopular in some progressive circles. I know there's a lot of people uh, in progressive circles who are really focused on the notion of decreasing funding for policing to pay for mental health services and education and all these things. And actually, I support that, you know, and, and, I, and I get all of the defund police movements. But part of the reason people are talking about, you know, doing that isn't so much that they that they feel like police budgets have to be less and we need less police. Some people do believe that. Many people do believe that. I mean, I, I believe that. But part of it is we don't have enough funding in cities to pay for things that we need in general. Um, and so, you know, beyond just trying to repurpose funding from police, I'm actually really, really focused on how do we make it so that cities coffers aren't so depleted that we have to pit this department against another department. I'm not so much here to say that the police department needs to be super well-funded, but what happens is other departments start battling each other over stuff. Like I can't have less money going to public work so that I can have more money going to mental health. We, we need to make those reallocations, but we need to have a broader conversation about why is it that cities are so poor that often the only way to have mental health funding is to you know, go after public works budget or go after another department's budget. Cities are broke 
in the pandemic has made them even broker. And so, you know, what I want to have a conversation about is how do we change that dynamic? And I believe the way that we help that dynamic is to rekindle the spirit of FDR um, and what created Greenbelt in the first place. The New Deal wasn't just, you know, what you read in history books. It also was massive investment in local governments. Now, they didn't do this on a wide scale. But if you look at Greenbelt, we are actually the product of federal investment in municipalities, in cities, right? I told you we were created by the New Deal. And so, you know, Greenbelt was designed as one of the three green towns, uh, one of the 10 towns that changed America, Greenbelt. Hmm. But we were invested in by the federal government from day one. And so, you know, we've seen over the past decades that cities like Greenbelt and all across America have been divested in by the federal government, by state governments. And so we just have way less money. And the only way to try to fit re, re, uh, to, 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 to deal with the depletion of our coffers is to raise property taxes. That's a bankrupt model. We need to be taxing the rich locally, on a county level, on a state level, and national, right? That's something that needs to be done. So I think ultimately we need a shift from a model that says the only way cities can have money is to you know, raise property taxes. We need to be able to deal with income taxes, right? We need to be able to deal with income taxes so we can target those who are extraordinarily wealthy um, and make sure that their resources are used in part to help fund um, benefits for not only them, but people throughout the county, but people throughout the city. That's the conversation that I ultimately want to have is how we can go about taxing the Jeff Bezos's of the world. Yeah, I think you're on the right uh, page there for sure. And that's a really interesting perspective. So thank you for sharing that. Um, we don't have to stay on this topic for long, uh, but I did want to quickly get your reaction to um, what's going down in the House. You know, obviously, Majority Leader Steny Hoyer is kind of leading these hearings against Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, you know, trying to she he uh, Steny Hoyer said that she should be removed from her committee assignments. Some people think that doesn't go far enough, you know, suggesting that she should be uh, outright expelled from Congress. Um, you know, Lawmakers like Cori Bush from our state of Missouri have suggested that not only um, should Green be expelled, but so should, you know, Josh Hawley and other lawmakers like Ted Cruz, who uh, played a role in the attempted insurrection we saw on January 6th. Just wanted to quickly um, get your opinion or reaction uh, as to what you think the consequences lawmakers such as Green should face. So first of all, you know, of course, I, I think that she should be removed. And, I, and, I, and I'm literally seeing that she just, you know, the, the House just voted to strip her of her committee assignments. Mm-hmm. I agree that that is appropriate. Frankly, it's far from enough, though. I'm actually really worried about the fact that they took that step as though that's something to be celebrated. The reality is um, she should be expelled. But I also want to say, and, and I think you alluded to it, that she's not the only person. Um, who needs to be uh, dealt with um, and, and, and face repercussions for her previous actions. I mean, some of these individuals, including, uh, you know, Ms. Green, have done things since becoming members of Congress that are extraordinarily problematic, including, you know, helping to incite the insurrection that uh, attempted white supremacist coup. And so I, I support what Congresswoman Bush has um, called for, which is the expulsion of these members of Congress up to and beyond the ones that you just named. Um, look, we are not like look, if we if we if we think that this is okay to just strip of our committee assignments and she can still vote on the House floor and she can still serve in the House of, of, of Representatives, um, we're really lowering the bar big time. Um, and I, I think it's actually consistent with the way that you know Congressman Hoyer and, and politicians like him solve 
big problems is to is to use pinprick solutions to solve massive problems. Reality is all of them have to be expelled. They all have to be expelled. What happened on January 6th wasn't incited by one individual. <laughs> it was cited, it was incited by scores of so-called uh, public servants who had zero interest in respecting the will of the people of this country. And so, you know, that is that is extremely problematic. And the fact that it led to violence is, is that much more problematic. I actually supported impeachment the Sunday before um, the Sunday before uh, the insurrection. And I actually asked the, the congressman to support it. You know, if we would have been talking about impeachment, then perhaps the president would have mellowed his tone, as he has since done, and called for peace. And we would have helped to prevent that. You know, so I, I, I think that's exactly what we have to do. Um, you know, we, we have to do that. We have to expel them. But let me let me let me let me I want to make sure that I give you this anecdote because I want you to understand the broader context in which I view this issue. We had a very similar, you know, although had some differences situation here in Maryland, right? In the Maryland House of Delegates, there was a woman named Marianne Lasanti, is a woman named Marianne Lasanti, who called a district in my county, an inward district, right? And instead of expelling her, the House of Delegates chose to just censure her, right? And they stripped her of her committee assignments, right? So I'm seeing this actually re repeated on the national level. And now this lady has her committee assignments again. She's been promoted. You know, she's on a powerful committee, a committee that has jurisdiction over a HBCU lawsuit, uh, you know, diversity in sports betting licenses, diversity in the marijuana industry, all of this stuff. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and taxes and all kinds of issues, education, equality issues. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen with Ms. Green, but the reality is that neither one of them should be able to continue to serve as yep. a legislator in a body that has a duty to, uh, you know, people of color uh, in particular, but really any Americans. Yep. I mean, Ms. Green has offended everybody, including victims of school shootings, well, victims you're, of I think gun you're violence. I think you're absolutely correct that, I mean, obviously there's already so much racism and, and bigotry that, you know, shows up in legislation, even if it's kind of from an unconscious or, you know, un, un, you know, unaware level, but you have someone who's a legitimate outward racist, someone who's a complete undeniable white supremacist. And, and yeah, obviously that person shouldn't have any legislative powers over um, other people in this country and especially not over, you know, people of color. So, you know, absolutely. I, I think you're, I think you're spot on. Um, one last question I had for you, mayor, before we let you go here is, uh, it does appear that Michaela Wilkes, who ran against Denny Hoyer last time, and I, and I believe was endorsed by brand new Congress, it looks like she's preparing to enter this race again this time around. And I'm sure that she will also be branding herself as the progressive alternative to Hoyer. Um, I'm just wondering what case you plan on making to her voters and, and maybe other people that remember her from last time around as to why you're the best or the most progressive option and why people should vote for you. Yeah, so look, I, I'm... I'm running this race. Uh, I'm not actually running against uh, Ms. Wilkes. I, I wouldn't even necessarily say if you really had pinned me down and asked it, I wouldn't even necessarily say I'm running against uh, Congressman Hoy. I'm running against what I believe is bad public service. And I believe I can provide good public service. Um, you know, we're going to have a conversation and the people are going to have an opportunity to make a, a decision about who is best. So I really don't have anything, uh, you know, negative to say about her or even trying to contrast myself with her at this stage. I, I will say this. I'm, it's a beautiful day in America when an individual like Ms. Wilkes, as well as myself, can submit ourselves for candidacy um, in the 5th Congressional District or any congressional district in America. Um, I believe that in her last campaign, she 
you know, brought some some important issues uh, up. Um, she, it, it, you know, raised uh, some really valuable. Con- she 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 talked about some valuable conversations around you know uh, you know education uh, around the mass incarceration and criminal justice system. Um, you know, but we're two different candidates, and I think people will get an opportunity to see the difference. Um, you know, in more ways than one, and they'll be able to make a judgment. I believe, but, but let me just be clear. I believe that I'm the uh, most appropriate candidate uh, in this race to serve in Congress. And I mean, I, I, I'll just say this. I believe that I'll win. And I believe that I'll win by a wide margin uh, against Denny Hoyer or if he's not on the ballot, which, which is not a given, by the way. I mean, he, he may or may not run for re-election. Mm, and, um, I didn't think you know, about that, but he is pretty old. Yeah, yeah there's always that chance. Yeah. I mean, he's 81 and counting. Yeah. Uh, and I'm well, that, that would be great. If he did step to the side, then we could have a real, you know, contest of ideas between yourself and um, Ms. Wilkes. I think that would be a great race that might be even more constructive. So, uh, you know, regardless of what happens, we're looking forward to continuing to cover your candidacy and hopefully speaking with you again in the near future as the race gets closer, Mayor. Yeah. And just to pop in, uh, Mayor Bird, where can people go to find out more about your campaign and support you if they've been, you know, compelled and, and want to, you know, see to it that you uh, are elected to Congress? Yeah, so they can uh, follow me on Twitter at uh, Mayor Bird, uh, at Mayor Bird, uh, or on Facebook at Vote Colin Bird. So Facebook.com slash Vote Colin Bird, Twitter.com slash Mayor Bird. Um, those are the main two ways. I also encourage people to reach out to me directly, uh, you know, sort of in the traditional means like email. Mm-hmm. Uh, my email address is Colin A. Bird at gmail.com, C O L I N A B Y R D at gmail.com. But I really want to make the plug for the Twitter. Uh, and the reason I want to make the plug for the Twitter is, um, you actually just started my Twitter account, uh, this, uh, sorry, January. So last month, mm. um, you know, which is, you know, I, I'm an old soul. Uh, and so, you know, most of my, most of my time in public service and even prior to public service, I've been fighting in the streets, not in the tweets. Mm. And so I got some ground to make up there just to make sure that we have the followers. Look, we have the message, but we got to reach more people and that's part of it. So. You know, I would be humbled and grateful if people would take some time to to follow me, uh, to to listen to me, uh, and also to to consider retweeting because that helps as well. Just kind of get my get my message out in front of more people. But you know, I'm I'm really about substance. So you know, if you follow me, I'm going to be talking about some serious stuff. Like right now, I'm pushing Congressman Hoya, for example, on the Marshall Green uh, issue. You know, she needs to be expelled. So we're going to see if that works. You know, so in this campaign, I'm not just trying to score points against him so that I win in the end. I hope that during the campaign, we can actually push Congressman Hoyer because, look, you know, some people, because they want to win, they actually want Stanley Hoyer to be a bad public servant. I actually want him to be a better public servant. I mean, if he's a good enough public servant, there's no reason for me to be in the race. Um, Some people want him gone no matter what. But like if he just becomes the best congressman ever, I mean, look, I'm not here to run just for its own sake. Reality is, I don't believe he's going to turn into the best congressman ever, but I'm just saying I'm not running because I want to be a member of Congress. I'm running because I want my community to be much better served. And right now it's not being well served by this individual holding that office. Uh, Well, Mr. Uh, Mayor Colin Bird, we look forward to speaking with you again as the race unfolds. And uh, we thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us this evening. It was awesome having you. Hey, it's my pleasure, Beyond. Thank you so much for having me, Uh, Mr. Gavin and Mr. Zach. And you guys have a a beautiful rest of the evening, okay? You too. Take care. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye.